The Sparks Museum podcast is made possible by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one of many new features of the Sparks Heritage Museum. To learn more, check out our social media channels or our website at www.sparksmuseum.org. Hello, and welcome to the Sparks Museum podcast. I'm your host and the media manager for the Sparks Heritage Museum, Jessica Johnson. The Lincoln Highway was the first transcontinental highway across the United States. Dedicated on October 31, 1913 as a memorial to President Abraham Lincoln. The highway spanned 3,389 miles from San Francisco to New York. The Lincoln Highway did not initially include sparks in its route, but ultimately the path was adjusted and included portions of what today is Vista Boulevard, Crater Way, and Victorian Avenue. One of the largest highway alignments running through Sparks was on B Street, which is today Victorian Avenue, the street directly outside the Sparks Museum. On July 16, 2022, the museum opened an exhibit in its main gallery in partnership with the Nevada chapter of the Lincoln Highway Association, paying tribute to such an important historical feature of U.S. transportation. Today on the podcast, I sit down with Jim Bonar, the director and past president of the Nevada chapter of the Lincoln Highway Association. He currently gives presentations and tours of Western historical topics, including immigrant trails, early roads, and other Western events to many local groups. Please welcome to the podcast, Jim Bonar. Hi, Jim. Thank you so much for being on the Sparks Museum podcast today. Well, it's just a wonder to be here. <laughs> So I'm going to start off the way that I start off with all of our guests, which is what, if any, personal connection do you have with the city of Sparks? And it looks to me like you got a pretty big one based on the shirt you brought in today. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, not living in Sparks. I live at, uh, south of town in the Washoe Valley. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to teach at Sparks High for 14 years between uh, uh, 1989 and 2003. So uh, my my life with Sparks dealt primarily around with the families close to downtown Sparks, being Sparks High area, um, just before they re went to Reed High. And I found it quite encouraging. I really loved the kids. I uh, had ample opportunity to move to different schools, but I always liked to stay at Sparks High because I really liked the kids out of that area. Could you tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Lincoln Highway Association? How did you come to be involved? The Lincoln Highway Association is kind of unusual. Uh, in the 90s, we had a group of my-aged individuals, basically, who had a resurgence of, uh, of history. And so we had a uh, gentleman back in the early 90s, late 80s, uh, uh, Mr. Francois, who started an organization called the uh, Oregon-California Trail Association. And Francois was interested in the movement of the immigrants from the Missouri River to uh, Oregon, California, and the Gold Rush area, and, and uh, the, literally the movement all the way to California. And along with that, like a lot of us, he also became interested in the highways. And so uh, Gregory Francois also got very interested in the Lincoln Highway, which is the first transcontinental highway that we had for automobiles in 1913. And so he became our leading director and our, uh, the individual who set up our organization in 1994. Um, so I joined 1996 when we had our first convention here in Reno uh, because of my how, how should you say it? My desire for roads, highways, trails, and movement of individuals uh, coming from different places. And why do we have immigration? What is the cause of immigration uh, of people for whatever reason? That is so interesting. Were you always involved in that topic or in the general topic of history across this region? Well, my, uh, my father is a typical Westerner. <laughs> Uh, of a young man who was raised in Illinois uh, right around the turn of the century. He was born in 1902, and he was similar to what most Westerners were from the 1880s up in that time, 
uh, moving around the West trying to find work primarily in the mining industry. Mm. And so um, I grew up in two different mining communities, one in a little uh, burg in central Utah called Bonanza, Utah. And then uh, when I was really able to understand things, we moved to Green River, Wyoming. Oh, wow. And Green River, Wyoming is where I kind of became interested in the roads and transportation, uh, especially railroads, and especially cars going across U.S. 30 of where are they going, where have they been, what are they doing, why are they going, and all of those different questions. And it's always, it's always been interesting, and I've always been interested in, in the geography of roads, of why is a road there, why is that road going there, what is the purpose of that road, and uh, all of those questions that uh, uh, became, for me, uh, that I wanted to find the answers to. Well, you mentioned that the Lincoln Highway was started, what did you say, 1913? Lincoln Highway was an idea by a guy named Carl Fisher in 1913, yes. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit more about the origin of the Lincoln Highway and its primary purpose, and what impact has it had on interstate travel today? Mr. Fisher was a extremely wealthy automobile uh, accessory producer. Um, he was a actually a very, very good salesman is what he really was. And he wound up buying a company called the Prestolite Company back in around, somewhere around oh, 1908. And he made himself quite a number of money, made himself many millions. Uh, he was with a group of people leaving Indianapolis, and they were out traveling, and it got dark, and they couldn't find their way back. So this bothered Mr. Fisher, and he started to look around, and he found out that there really wasn't any roads that you could rely on to get you anywhere. Mm. Uh, so there wasn't any posting, there wasn't any maps, there wasn't anything like this. And he got it into his head that he wanted to produce a coast-to-coast highway. And so he called it the, the Rock Coast-to-Coast Highway because that's all they had that time was gravel. And he uh, got a, another group of the industrialists uh, together, mostly them uh, were automotive manufacturers, uh, to help him along to determine where this road was going to go and how it was going to go and how it was going to be built. So his idea was that uh, he would t- get, by 1913 to 1915, he was going to get $10 million, and he was going to build a rock-graded road all the way from New York to California. Of course, he didn't realize that you had the Rocky Mountains in the way, you had the <laughs> Sierra Nevada in the way, and you had all of these different places that would uh, sap that money real quickly. Sure. So it didn't last long. And the organization was then taken up by an individual called Henry Joy, who was the president of the Packard Motor Car uh, Corporation. And Henry and another group of these uh, uh, very wealthy men who were producing automobiles, Willys was one, for instance, um, along with uh, Pennington, who was a uh, member of the automotive uh, tire industry, and Mr. Cyberlane, who was uh, the owner of the Goodyear uh, Rubber Company, decided that they needed to not necessarily build a road, but to advance a road by a series of marking the road, a series of uh, putting guidebooks together, a series of letting individuals know that their automobile can leave the town and get back safely. Mm. So they started to get money together through donations to improve parts of the highway uh, to make it easier for automobiles to travel. And especially as the time went on and automobiles became uh, better uh, than they were in 1913, these individuals would actually donate hundreds of thousands of dollars to build parts of the highway. Uh, Especially, for instance, across Nevada, Mr. Cyberlene spent over $100,000 improving the roads uh, east of Fallon, which, if you stop and think, in uh, in 1918 was an awful lot of money yeah. just for across Nevada. 
the whole reason why you're here with us today is because the Sparks Museum recently opened a new area of its permanent gallery dedicated to the Lincoln Highway with items that are generously on loan from the Nevada chapter of the uh, Lincoln Highway Association. And you came and gave an amazing talk. And uh, one of my favorite parts of your talk was talking about the quality of the roads and some of the challenges that these individuals who were involved in the early days of the Lincoln Highway had to put up with weather and flooding. Could you speak a little bit more about some of the stories that you were telling regarding those topics? Well, one of the, we have the same problem today with the infrastructure of our highways. Uh, Who's responsible for them and how do we build them? And when we originally started, when we, when the original uh, Lincoln Highway was started with this $10 million, Mr. Fisher felt that it was a responsibility of the automotive industry to supply the roadbeds for the country. Uh, so he had the backing of most of the automotive manufacturers, with the exception of Henry Ford. And Henry Ford said, no, it's the responsibility of the public to, vote, to provide highways across the nation. So that kind of set the standard. If you don't have Henry Ford behind you in 1913, you don't have anybody behind you. <laughs> um, so it took... The population at the time, from 1913, there were over 180,000 automobiles registered in 1913. Uh, You stop and think that number isn't very big, but for the size of the country at the time, 180,000 was a lot. So once he started producing a Model T, by 1915, we had well into over a million automobiles. Wow. So with, with no real good roadbed to do it. So who was going to do it? Who's going to build it? And this is when finally we, get, we got the federal government involved and we had the first federal act, uh, first uh, highway federal act in 1916, uh, where the federal government did, would then uh, allocate a certain amount of money per state for state highways. And you as a state had to apply for this money and it had to be spent in a specific way. Then we had a very major bill in 1921 that uh, really changed the highway system as per se uh, and gave 7% of federal money to build a specific highway across the nation. But they had to be linked together state through state through state. And then in 1926, we passed even a larger bill where we were going to then build the highways, and we're going to actually make them usable by automobiles. We had now cars with balloon tires. We had cars with hard tops. We had cars that uh, started automatically. And uh, the uh, progression of the automobile between that time was incredible. And finally, the feds got involved. And this is when we started now gassing, uh, taxing gasoline, taxing different things for us to build highways across the nation. I don't know whether that answered the question or whatever. Absolutely does. I'm really interested because there's a a expanse of the Lincoln Highway that uh, is along the museum on Victorian Street slash B Street. Um, And I know that back in the day, uh, we had our very first podcast we had with Scott Carey, who told us about the history of downtown Sparks as it used to be. And we used to have a hotel that was located right next to where the current museum is. And I'm interested, as the years progressed and the Lincoln Highway became a bigger thoroughfare with the increase in automobiles and traffic and interest, um, did you see a a lot of these places that were on the route increase in tourism? Um, or change at all to adapt to allow for these people passing through? Well, I think, I think we have to back up historically about uh, uh, the immigrants coming through uh, the Truckee Meadows going to California in the 50s or in the 40s, actually, in the 1840s through the 1850s, and especially 1849, 50, and 51 for the gold rush. Uh, they came through the Truckee Meadows because they were going to California for a better life. Um, And so we had to find trails for these individuals to go across. And a lot of people don't understand that the western, the western part of our valley of the Truckee Meadows was primarily a Thule swamp. Mm. And that's why we're going through the, um, 
the flood control situation around Steamboat around Steamboat Creek right now, and that's why the old monastery was uh, was taken down, for instance, in many of the areas because that was that was an area that was uh, was all tules. Uh, the same with where Sparks was. Uh, Sp- Sparks was originally owned by Mary Wells, who was a who was the individual who owned the ranch from basically about Prater Way down to the river. And uh, so there wasn't any way for automobiles or anything at that time to get through until 1903 when E.H. Harriman, who owned the Union Pacific Railroad, bought the ranch from Mary Wells and started moving gravel in, believe it or not, all the way from Verdi and further to fill up this area that was a... uh, was a Tule's area, and building then the highway out to what we have now as Vista. Uh, if you look on the other side of the Truckee River, we still have a large Tule area, which is called Boynton Slough. Uh, but we have now built between the river north into Sparks. We have built that all up. And as that happened, uh, and as Harriman built the town, everything was fine. The problem is, is when the Lincoln Highway came through in 1913, the Lincoln Highway used the old immigrant road, which was which through Glendale, because Glendale was one of the first towns in the Truckee Meadow area. So the Lincoln Highway came across through where about Kleppe is, down through Glendale, over uh, over through uh, Galetti Way, and then up into Reno. So it was kind of fascinating because in 1913. Reno was really only roughly 8 to 10 years old. Not Reno, but Sparks was only about 8 to 10 years old. Uh, so the mayor of Reno, uh, Mayor Boyington, he uh, contacted the Lincoln Highway Association. And he said, you know, I really think you should be running the highway through Sparks. And it should be going through downtown Sparks also. And so what the Lincoln Highway did, and we were very fortunate we had the old rail bed of the Central Pacific Railroad. And we used the old rail bed all the way from Wadsworth all the way into Reno because Harriman had moved the railroad down into the river in 1903. So we had this wonderful highway that was built by the Chinese in the 1860s, but it turned right and it went up Vista, up to Prater Way because of the Tules, and then down Prater Way, and picked up into Reno at Galetti and uh, where it comes in Reno. So if anybody has ever been curious why Prater Way doesn't fit streetwise in the city of Sparks, the reason is is because it's the old rail bed of the Central Pacific Railroad. Wow. That's why it isn't right angles to the rest of the city. And so that became the Lincoln Highway. And to bring it into downtown Sparks, where the hotels were and where the railroad station was, where the... Uh, 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 the depot was. They brought it down Pyramid uh, to B Street, which originally they wanted to call Harriman Street. And if you look on the old maps of, uh, of Pyramid Highway, it was originally called Lincoln Way. And it came off Prater, dropped to south, went down to B Street, followed B Street over to 15th, and went up 15th to Horseman's Park, and then on to Prater Way again. Uh, because the park itself was an auto campground that people would... And it was listed in our guide on the highway book that there was ample camping at the park. So you could set your tent up. There was water there. There was a little pool there. And you could have a comfortable evening. And then you could get back and drive down Prater Way over to Reno and pick up 4th Street and then 3rd Street and go out to, go out of Reno. Now, thinking about, you mentioned earlier, the difficulties and challenges with the different geographic regions across this country because correct me if i'm wrong here the end of the road in terms of where it ends up on the west is in san francisco correct yes so in terms of the different geographic challenges that the lincoln highway might have been facing in terms of uh charting this route what do you see in terms of leaving nevada and crossing over into california well, the Lincoln Highway followed existing trails. Yes. Okay, all of our trails in the West were basically made in, in the 1840s and the 1850s. Um, as we had the gold rush in California in 1859, 1849, we developed more roads, for instance, the road south up to Susanville into Honey Lake, 
uh, across the Hennis Pass Road. Uh, one of the major roads and what the Lincoln Highway followed was called the Dutch Flats Donner Lake Toll Road, which was put in by the railroad while they were building the Pacific Railroad across the Sierra. Uh, they needed a way to get goods from Dutch Flats up to Truckee and then Truckee across to Reno because most people in Nevada forget that the heritage that we have for our state is centered in 1859 in Virginia City. Uh, that's the important part of our state. That's the important part of northern Nevada. Reno wasn't here. Sparks wasn't here. Um, Jamestown was a little town called Jamestown on Vista was here. But that was it. And that was 1859, 1858 also. So the cash and the finances of the West Coast from San Francisco was to Virginia City. So we had to somehow get these goods to Virginia City. And so the big four who built the railroad built the what's called the Dutch Flats and Donner Lake Toll Road up to Virginia City. There was also a road uh, south of us in town, and it was the Lake Begler Toll Road. And it came out of Placerville. It went around uh, Lake Tahoe, and it came down into Carson City, and then from Carson City up Gold Canyon to Virginia City. So there was competition between these different highways and these different toll roads. We also had the toll road jumbo grade that came out of Washoe City and came up over into Virginia City. So these roads were extremely important uh, for the economy of San Francisco and the economy for the state of Nevada because we had over thirty to 40,000 individuals living in Gold Canyon with, uh, uh, with Virginia City, Gold Hills, Silver City, Jonestown, Jamestown, Dayton, and this area. And a lot, of our, a lot of our individuals today who live in this community aren't aware of that, about the, the amount of population that was up in the Virginia, uh, the Virginia Hills at the time. Mm-hmm. So when we established the Lincoln Highway, in Nevada, it was interesting because, Mr. Joy, we don't know why, but it's a supposition. Uh, Mr. Joy, when he mapped out the Lincoln Highway across the states, specifically said, I am going to find the shortest route possible. It's going to be 3,300 and a little bit of change from Times Square to uh, Lincoln Park at the Golden Gate. He said, it will be the shortest route. I don't care what towns are in the way. <laughs> I don't care what anything. But for some reason, he broke the highway, and he had it go th- north across near Truckee, well, through Truckee and over the road that we have today. But he also had it go down around Lake Tahoe. Now, we don't know why, but we feel that Mr. Joy felt that Lake Tahoe is something that everybody should see and that they should go by and see this wonderful place called Lake Tahoe and drive by Lake Tahoe and then down to Placerville and then down to San Francisco. So he broke his rule. (laughs) So we don't know why. Well, the split for this was in Reno. So you would drive into Reno through through Sparks on Prater and uh, and, – B Street or Harriman Street or Victorian, whatever you want to call it. And then you would stop and decide at Virginia Street whether you were going to continue and go west to San Francisco or whether you were going to turn left and go down to Carson City and then go over to Kings Canyon over Spooner Summit and to the lake and then on to Placerville. So why, we don't know. But that is part of the Lincoln Highway. How wonderful that we were given options of I, which landmarks we want to see in northern Nevada. And he never said why. Wow. But one of the, I think one of the more interesting stories that we had was Utah itself. And Utah itself was kind of in cahoots with San Francisco. And San Francisco was spending a lot of money in Salt Lake because San Francisco wanted the road to go across the northern part of, uh, of the Salt Lake Desert to uh, Wendover and then to Ely, uh, not to Ely, but to Elko through Winnemucca and then down into Reno, then across Truckee into San Francisco. Because the Lincoln Highway at that time was going south 
of uh, Salt Lake and coming into Ely on the middle of uh, Nevada on what we call the loneliest highway, Highway 50. And the problem is, once you hit Ely, you had a choice of going south on the Midland Road to take yourself to Los Angeles. And San Francisco didn't want that. They didn't want the people going to Los Angeles. They wanted the people going to San Francisco. So they spent a lot of money with Utah to have the road go to Wendover. And so in 1921, the Lincoln Highway lost, and the state of Utah actually closed the road that the Lincoln Highway was going through to Elko, to Ely. Oh, wow. And there was actually, Ely boycotted Salt Lake for about a year, and it actually cost Salt Lake a lot of money. So the road originally now went in about 1921 when we developed the Victory Highway also. It went to Wendover and then down the Humboldt Corridor coming into uh, uh, Fernley and then off to Reno. So it's been interesting as far as the politics gets involved with all the situation. That's so interesting to think about the different cities that have involvement of, no, 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 we want people traveling through here. But in thinking about the geography of our nation, there's a lot of space of the Lincoln Highway travels that is just rural farmland. In your research, did you see an opposite uh, reaction at all from maybe some of the landowners in the early days of people who maybe didn't want the thoroughfare of traffic coming through in some of their land? Many of them didn't. Um, in 1913, there weren't enough automobiles that it was really, as far as the rest of the country was concerned, wasn't profitable and wasn't a good reason and most of the farmers themselves didn't like the idea of this traffic coming by their farms until Henry Ford came out with a small pickup. And they found out that it was much easier to get their goods and their crops on a road that actually had gravel to town during the wet seasons. And so all of a sudden now they're picking up, oh, wait a moment, we do need a road. <laughs> And so they were convinced once trucking really came into effect after World War I. Uh, but before World War I, uh, they weren't actually too happy about having this traffic. In fact, uh, many of them, you would have a guidebook that would say that uh, go out three miles and turn right at the Red Barn. Well, the farmer didn't necessarily want the people knowing that, so he'd paint it yellow. Oh. <laughs> and then the people wouldn't know where they were. So it, it took a, a change of what we call, I'm going to use a word now that a lot of people don't know about. It's called a paradigm shift, where you have to change your attitude towards what's going on, not best for you, but best for the whole society itself. And the farmers eventually, uh, especially like I said after World War I, and Packard and Mack and the rest of them, uh, figured out that it's easier to send a large truck to the farm and move their goods instead of this uh, farmer with his, his four mules and his trailer that couldn't go through the mud. So it uh, was quite a change in that, uh, in that era of 1920 on. Now, the Lincoln Highway road markers and signs are very iconic with their big blue L and the red and blue stripe. But it occurred to me as we were talking, I'm not sure if we covered why the Lincoln Highway is called the Lincoln Highway. I think it's pretty self-explanatory that it's for Abraham Lincoln. But who made that choice? Henry Joy. Oh. Mr. Joy was an individual that had a uh, two silver spoons born in his mouth. And he was an extremely wealthy individual, and his father was actually a friend of Abraham Lincoln. Oh, wow. Uh, his father was worth a great deal of money, owned quite a few mines in, uh, in Nevada, as a matter of fact. Uh, qu owned quite a few mines, actually, in the Owens Valley area along with it. But his father was, uh, was a very wealthy individual. Uh, so uh, Mr. Joy became quite wealthy also from his father's money. I mean, to the point where in 1903, Mr. Joy bought a Packard. And he thought it was the nicest car he had, so he decided to buy a 1904 Packard. And he also decided to buy one for his brother-in-law. So they went down to Indianapolis, and they uh, looked at the two Packards. And he says, oh, the devil with it. And he got a group together, and they bought the company. 
So that's how he became president of the Packard Motor Car, car Company, is by purchasing the company and moving it to, to uh, uh, Detroit at the time. And uh, so Mr. Joy felt that calling it the Rock Coast Coast Highway didn't do it any credit. He felt that instead of building a monument in Washington, they should spend the money building a highway to memorialize Abraham Lincoln. But he couldn't convince the government to give him the money instead of the memorial that we have in Washington to build the road. So Mr. Joy had to figure out another way to build the road. Wow. Now, the museum, as I mentioned, recently had our exhibit opening. Could you tell us a bit more about the items that we have on display and how that like we've got a board game, we've got, of course, markers, um, and what the significance of these items are? Good question. Um, the Lincoln Highway, like any association, there were over, by 1926, 1928, there were over 300 and some odd named highways across the country. Uh, we had the Jefferson Highway. We had, we had the Memorial Highway. We had the Dixie Highway. We had all of these different highways, and people were getting extremely confused with where they were. And you would come into a town, and there would be dozens of signs pointing down the road about whether you're going to be on the Yellowstone Highway or whether you're going to be on the Dixie Highway or whatever. And so in 1926, the... U.S. government changed the rules that all highways would be state highways if they're state-funded, and they would have a, a, uh, a digit name. In other words, the Lincoln Highway, for instance, became primarily Highway 30 uh, here in Nevada, and uh, it became Highway 40, and it became Highway 50, depending on which one you were on. So before this time, what they were doing is they were selling all of this information goodies, you could call it, along the highway that you had traveled the Lincoln Highway. So you would come into, oh, a little burg, let's say, where I grew up in Green River, and there would be a little store there, and you'd go in the drugstore, and there would be a Lincoln Highway flag, or there would be a Lincoln Highway something, or a mug that had Lincoln Highway, or a postcard that said Green River Lincoln Highway, and you would buy all of this paraphernalia. So when we established the association once again in, in uh, 1990, uh, 1994, 1993, something around that, uh, most of us started collecting this old stuff and going on the Internet and going into different places and finding these commercial treasures that the Lincoln Highway had sold. Uh, guidebooks, for instance, we had uh, the Lincoln Highway put out four different guidebooks uh, one of them in 1916, one in 1924, uh, one in 1920 of how you go on these highways. Uh, a lot of postcards, especially. Uh, a lot of different things. I have a, a banner flag, for instance. Um, the other thing, which is kind of interesting, like you mentioned, was a board game, which is really kind of fascinating. <laughs> it was kind of silly. It didn't really do anything, but you shook the dice and you went across the Lincoln Highway. Um the other thing was the marking of the Lincoln Highway, which was unique uh, because it was one of the few highways that actually did spend a great deal of money on it. As we had a association, each state had a association, had a director, had a president, as we do today. I'm the director of the Nevada chapter of the Lincoln Highway. Okay, we have a president of our Nevada chapter. And it's our responsibility still to this day to mark the Lincoln Highway, just historically. But in the past, it was marked to indicate to you as a driver that you are on the correct highway. So we had the red, white, and blue with the L that would, we would put on telephone poles and we would put on the side of the buildings and we would put on railroad overpasses to tell people and let you know that, yes, you're on the correct road. You're not on the Yellowstone Highway, but you're on the Lincoln Highway. And so that's the involvement with those, and they were very, very significant uh, because the chapters across the country, we had a total of 13 states, were very active in marking these highways. Uh, we have one case where the general secretary came into Reno 
and he noticed that uh, there was a marking on one of the buildings that was incorrect, and he made the owner of the building take it off and put it correctly where it belonged on the Lincoln Highway. Wow. So it's quite political. <laughs> How long have you been a director of the Nevada chapter? Oh, hell. <laughs> <laughs> Too long. <laughs> I don't know what now, 15 years or so. Wow. It, we can, it, it's very difficult to find involvement. We don't have a large, a large group. We have about 30 members in the chapter throughout the state. But trying to find anybody that wants to step up and be oh, president or chapter or, do, or director or something is very difficult, just like any organization we have out there right now. Oh, absolutely. It's very hard. What is the primary function of these state chapters of the Lincoln Highway, and also kind of in a larger sense, what is the function of the Lincoln Highway today? Um, why do you think that it's important that this history be preserved? We all just think it's important that history is preserved, period. Yeah. It's that simple. Um, we have a tendency to forget. Uh, I think one of the questions, I don't know whether it was you asked me uh, earlier here a week or so ago, uh, somebody going to Sparks High and asking them why they were called the railroaders. Well, why is Sparks High called the railroaders? And the kids just kind of looked open-eyed and said, we have no idea. Well, Sparks High is called the railroaders because we are the railroaders because this town didn't exist. And then all of a sudden, in one day, in 1903, it existed. It didn't exist, and then it did exist. And then two years later, they had to find a name for it. They tried to call it Harriman, but Mr. Harriman, who owned the Union Pacific Railroad, said no. And so they went to who we normally go to, a good politician, who was Governor Sparks, who actually had, his house wasn't in Reno, but he did own Wiedekind Mine. And Sparks, being a politician, said, well, of course you can name it after me. And so it is named after one of the governors in 1913, or 1930, I should say, 1903, who was the governor of, of the state of Nevada. He says, certainly you can name it after me. So that's why it's called Sparks. Now, the irony, on the other hand, Reno itself was a name that was pulled out of a hat. Uh, there was just a bunch of names in a hat, so every time the Central Pacific would come to a place, they would pull a name out of a hat, and Reno's name was pulled out after a general called Jesse, uh, Jesse Reno from the Civil War. So there was no reason to call it Reno. Uh, it had nothing to do with us or the West or anything. He'd never been here. But at least Sparks was the governor of our state. So that's a little more interesting than Reno as far as that goes. But you're absolutely right in terms of these stories are so important to tell. And in regards to the Lincoln Highway, um, what aspects of the, the history of this interstate do you think are most important to keep sharing and keep reminding generations to come? I think that we just have to remember where we, we go to high school. Fortunately, we live in a country that is, is it's mandatory that 100% of our children go to school. Even if you're an immigrant and you're not a citizen, you still go to school period. We pay for that. You are expected. If you're in this country, legally or illegally, you are going to be educated, so you are going to be, hopefully, somebody that's going to help our civilization. We're one of the few countries that do that. Many of the countries in the world will not educate 100% of their population. China is one of those, believe it or not. Um, so it's important for all of us to know our history of how the country, which we call a democracy or a republic, whichever word you want to use, are inherent to us about our freedom and our liberty that we have within this, within this association with our politicians and what we expect these politicians to do for us as a society. And I think having these interstate systems naming them after these different people, remind us of the history of what is important within our given areas. Uh, most people call it the, uh, the Eisenhower National Highway is our interstate system. 
which is really, I, as a historian, I laugh because President Eisenhower really didn't know anything about it, and he just signed a piece of paper that the Congress had come up with, and that was all. He really didn't know what he was signing except that he was going to get a road across the country. So that's a wonderful story all in its own is, is, is President Eisenhower and the interstate highway system. But they're important for us to, as members of our society, to be very, very aware of why we're here and we are here at our choice and we weren't sent here by our government for their purposes. Uh, if you live in many, many other different countries, you are forced to live in specific places because the leadership wants you there. I agree. I, I believe that it is essential. Travel and immigration is an essential part of the American story. And I think that there can be no better story to uh, uncover how we got here than the trails and routes that got us here. And I think our our one of the things that our society, unfortunately, our schools are doing it, and our schools have always done it, um, of going to museums. And the problem is, is once we get out of childhood, we have a tendency to forget about doing that. And as parents, it's our responsibility if we live in a specific community, that we take these children to these different museums and to these different places of importance uh, to see what is there and the geography of the country. I had, I had quite a few kids. I was very disappointed at Sparks High. Not at Sparks High necessarily, but uh, unfortunately Sparks was not one of the wealthier uh, clientele many of the kids had never had the opportunity to ever see Lake Tahoe. Mm. Now, that's just wrong. <laughs> to be or, so close. Yeah. Or to go to Virginia City. Mm. You know, sure, it's a tourist trap. Fine, it's a bunch of tea shops, you know, T-shirt shops and a bunch of candy shops. But that's not the point. You need to go to Virginia City. You need to take the tram. You need to learn a little bit of history about it. You need to find out why our culture is what it is. And, you know, why is our capital in Carson City? You know, what is going on? You know, I, these different questions are very, very important. Well, as a representative of the Sparks Museum, I can't tell you how grateful I am to hear your advocacy for museums and history. And, uh, yeah, that's what we're both trying to do here, our organization's mission, trying to preserve this history for generations to come. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to shift into our final big three questions. Our these final are the big final big three. <laughs> Boy, I hope I get these right. <laughs> <laughs> there, yes, they're, this is very important. <laughs> so, what sparks you about Sparks? What do you think makes it an interesting place to live, work, or visit? What makes it an interesting place for me to work or visit? Since I worked here, I enjoyed working at Sparks High, so there's no question about it. Uh, I enjoyed the camaraderie of the families in Sparks High. Um, growing up in the little town of Green River, which is in Wyoming, in southern Wyoming, uh, it was also a railroad town, and we also uh, had a river going through it. Uh, our houses were very, very similar to what you see in Sparks High, so I was very, very used to that type of community, very used to uh, smaller homes of working people. Uh, ours were primarily worked in mines and worked in the railroad. Uh, it was a town similar size to Sparks when I moved here, and so I felt more comfortable in Sparks, just the community itself. Um, when I first came here and went down B Street, it looked very much just like going down uh, Highway 30 in Green River, Wyoming. You know, same buildings, same banks, same hotels, same, you know, same drugstores, same whatevers, you know. Obviously, it's changed a great deal now. Victorian isn't quite like it used to, that it was the 50 years ago that I moved here. It's made a radical change, sure. <laughs> needless to say. <laughs> So it's, it's very difficult uh, to talk about why. Um, 
there are many things here I think that uh, are available for us to do if you take the time to do them. Do you have a favorite story or moment from Sparks's history? This could be either a personal memory or a story that you've heard that you feel is significant and that you'd love to share. Oh, one of the things I found interesting about Sparks High history-wise, which was, uh, uh, I already mentioned it was uh, purchased by Mary uh, from Mary Wells as a ranch. Uh, the neat thing is when they built Sparks High, and it's always been a wonderful story, and I love the story because I'm also a railroad fanatic and about every railroad built has the same story. Um, so Sparks was moved from Wadsworth. That's the story that everybody is told. Right. Is that E.H. Harriman didn't like where Wadsworth was, and he wanted the he wanted his uh, his roundhouse and his switchyard and everything moved to moved to Sparks. And we have a big building across uh, across the tracks called the Ice House, and that was always just a wonderful pleasure to me to go in the Ice House because that's where uh, Mr. Hara had his his automobile collection, and so we would go to the Ice House and he would see his you would get really really bored at looking at his thousands of automobiles. <laughs> um, so anyway, that was always very, but a lot of people don't realize that. One of the things that they did when they moved Wadsworth is they gave the individuals a chance to actually move their home. And they would actually lift their home up off the ground and they would put it on the train and they would send it to Sparks and they had an area called the Reserve, which is over off of A Street, which nobody knows about in Sparks anymore. Where in the devil is A Street? Well, <laughs> A Street is the other side of the tracks. And so down by A Streaks was called the reserve area. And there was a, oh, about a three-block area where they would put up these homes that were built in Wadsworth and just kind of laid on the ground. So I was always curious about uh, these houses. And the story always goes that they picked up a house on the ground and poor old what's-his-name who owned the house happened to be a little bit, uh, had a little bit whiskey too much that day. And he was kind of rolled around in his bedroom on his his trip from uh, Wadsworth to Sparks, and then his house all of a sudden was in Sparks, and he woke up, and he could, didn't know where in the devil he was. <laughs> and that story is told about every railroad company I have ever been studied. Wow. Is the individual that was in his house and moved to a different area by the railroad. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> so every railroad has that story. Amazing. I'm so glad that Sparks is a part of that history. <laughs> And since we are a museum with a collections archive, um, we believe that there are countless items and artifacts and stories in the Truckee Meadows region that are worth telling um, and preserving. So what is one thing that you either own or something that you're aware of that if you had the ability, you would put in a museum? I know we have many Lincoln Highway items. So is there something that we're missing or something completely different related to history that you think is museum worthy? Kind of, you know, that's kind of an interesting story. I had the chance when I started giving lectures on the, uh, on the Lincoln Highway. I, I've been giving lectures on the Lincoln Highway for about 20 years now to different organizations. And I was at, uh, gave one lecture. I can't remember exactly where it was, but I had a woman came up to me and she said, uh, she said that she had one of the concrete posts. Now, that shouldn't mean anything, except in 1928, there were 3,000 concrete posts that were printed Lincoln Highway, and there was a, uh, a copper medallion that was put on the post with a bust of Lincoln. And it was against the law to mark any highway of any name during that time. So it was either called Highway 50, Highway 40, and you could not you could not indicate that this was the Lincoln Highway. Mm. Well, we skirted the law because we didn't say that this was a post for the Lincoln Highway. We skirted the law and said we are putting these posts up to memorialize the martyred President Lincoln. Oh. Had nothing to do with the Lincoln Highway, even though all three thousand of them followed the Lincoln Highway. Sure. So what we had is we had the Boy Scouts go across the, the nation in a special vehicle, and they dug all of the holes, and they placed all of these different uh, posts that uh, our secretary, a man named Gail Hogue, who happened to be a Nevadan, uh, 
decide where all of these posts go. And then on one specific day in 1926, all of these posts were put in the ground by the Boy Scouts and set. Wow. All except Illinois. They never got all their posts (laughs) on time. But anyway, that's another story. So these posts become quite valuable. And they're a concrete marker. They weigh about uh, they weigh about three hundred pounds. And they're about seven feet high, and they are very highly collectible. Um, the NDOT has come through uh, Highway Fifty here about oh twenty years ago, and they took them all out when they widened the highway. And uh, we understand that the director of that station saw this pallet of concrete posts out there in the back, and he basically just said, get rid of those, and they were buried in the desert. Oh. So we don't know where. So this woman came up to me, and she says, I have one of these posts in my backyard. My husband just died, and is there any place that you would like it? And I told her they're very specifically. I would like that post to go to the Sparks Museum because it's on the corner of the Lincoln Highway. So we as the association... I'm not going to say me. I'm going to say we as the association then donated it to the Sparks Museum, and it is one of the major attractions that we have there, and that's our concrete post. Um, The other interesting little item was that I was helping to clean out the uh, Wattel Thunderbird Lodge one when we originally got it as the state. I was a curator up there as uh, as a curator of the yacht and curator, curator of a few other things, and so I was helping, and we came across the Lincoln Highway game, uh, which is impossible to find. And so it was then donated uh, basically through the Wattel Museum through me, and I've donated it now to uh, the Sparks Museum. And so it's just things like postcards and just things like that are unusual that what am I going to do with them? My children don't want them, uh, and where should they be? Should they be just put in a box in the attic and st- left there forever, or where, where is the best place for them? You know, and as long as the museum will use them, can use them, and will show them, I think we're all happy with that. Well, I know the board game is one of my favorite aspects of the new exhibit, and you are correct, that concrete post has been the cornerstone of that entire part of the gallery for so many years. Mm -hmm. So we really appreciate your donation, the donation of the time and efforts of your entire chapter, the Nevada chapter of the Lincoln Highway Association that worked so tirelessly with the Sparks Museum to get this uh, exhibit off the ground. And thank you for coming in today and speaking with us. No problem. This has been a delight. Thank you so much. Sparks Museum podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is produced and recorded at the podcast recording studio at Sparks' own AntSpace co-working entrepreneurial hub, a place for entrepreneurs made by entrepreneurs. We really want to get the word out about our brand new audio series, so please spread the word about our new podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and share this episode. Do you have a favorite story of Sparks that you want to hear on the podcast? Email info at sparksmuseum.org to share any recommendations. We would love to hear from you. We also invite you to visit the Sparks Heritage Museum on 814 Victorian Avenue. The museum is open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Please come visit and be a part of our ongoing efforts to tell the Sparks story. We'll see you next time.